Central to America's strategy in the Cold War was the principle of MAD, mutually assured destruction. The idea was to make nuclear warfare a lose-lose proposition, a game you just can't win. Whichever side was attacked would retain the capability to counterattack. Both sides would end up devastated, if not annihilated. But MAD works only if both sides are equally averse to mass death and destruction. When it comes to Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Ali Khamenei, and Kim Jong-un, can we be confident of that? If not, what replaces MAD? I think the answer is robust deterrence and comprehensive missile defense systems. Neither can be achieved easily, cheaply, or quickly, and we've really not yet begun to pursue such goals. To unpack these issues, we're joined today by Rob Super, a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Center for Strategic Studies. He's been a professor at the National War College and served as a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Also with us, Bradley Bowman, a West Point graduate who served as an active duty U.S. Army officer, Black Hawk pilot, and top advisor to two U.S. senators. These days, he's senior director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're virtually in the room with us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, so just uh, full disclosure, just how this uh, came about, I wrote a column and it was on the sort of obsolescence of MAD, not saying obsolete, saying obsolescence. Um, and the need to dramatically beef up deterrent capabilities uh, of the U.S. and its allies, NATO, of course, but not just NATO. And I shared that a draft of that come with Brad, as I often do. And he came up and he, said he had a million things to add and say. And what about this and that? And I said, okay, I, I, a 900-word column, I can only get so much in. But let's have a discussion about this. And he said, yeah, let's bring Rob in uh, uh, as well. So I guess start with with this basic question. Do you agree that we can no longer take for granted that the perverse logic of of MAD, remaining vulnerable to our enemies, will keep us safe, or at least safer than any of the alternatives. I think you're you're onto something here. And in, in today's world, uh, remaining vulnerable uh, to uh, to threats to the United States uh, is is probably not 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 in our interest. When we conducted the uh, the nuclear posture review and the missile defense review under the Trump administration, we explored these topics, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's useful to to think of, of two sets of issues. One is uh, our, our vulnerability to rogue states like North Korea and Iran and others, right? And then our vulnerability to, to great powers such as, such as Russia and, and China, which will soon have 
by the end of this decade, at least a thousand nuclear warheads, and we'll have their own uh, uh, s- sort of mini triads, similar to what we have. So, yeah, just explain what yeah. a triad is. A triad is um, uh, three legs of our, our nuclear capabilities. It's an ICBM, uh, you know, a ground-based missile. Goes up into the atmosphere, up over the Earth, and right. then comes down. Comes down, trajectory. And, yep. and, it, and it flies intercontinental distances, right. so it can reach from, from the U.S. all the way to China. Or, or vice or versa. Russia, or vice versa, <laughs> exactly. Then, then you have uh, the sea-based lake of the triad, which is uh, ballistic missile submarines. And right now we have uh, we have 14 in the fleet. They're not all at, out at sea at one time, right? But they, they lie out there and they are the invulnerable leg of the triad, mm-hmm. uh, at least until countries develop anti-submarine warfare capabilities. These are invulnerable. They're out at sea and they can, again, they have uh, intercontinental range uh, missiles as well. We call them submarine launch ballistic missiles, right? And then there's the land-based leg, which are the old B-52 bombers. Uh, the B-52s are sold. They, they, um, the oldest one uh, was built in 1961 and it's still in service, right? Mm-hmm. But they are, they are vulnerable to air defenses. So their only role is to carry air launch cruise missiles. And so these cruise missiles can can uh, can be launched outside of you know Russian airspace or Chinese airspace. They fly a couple thousand uh, miles and they attack their targets. So we have the B-52s, but we also have the old B-2 bomber. Remember the stealth sure. bomber, right? Yeah. And uh, it's going to be followed by the uh, the B-21 Raider, which will be an even better version of the B-2 stealth bomber. So we have land, air, and sea. And the the, the advantage of this is it makes it very difficult for the adversary to contemplate a disarming first strike against the U.S. Right. And and my presumption is that makes a lot of sense. I think, with well, it, it made a lot of sense during the Cold War, certainly. I spent a lot, very amount of time in the Soviet Union. I was an exchange student and a journalist. And I gradually kind of came to the conclusion that, that the people who run this country are evil, but they're very rational. Um, and because they are de- they're historical determinists, which means they think they're on the right side of history, they think that Marxism, Leninism will win, there's no reason to be what Lenin called adventurist and push f- forward faster. Why? Secondly, they had things to, they had equities to protect. The, the rulers lived very well, actually, the people didn't, but they did. And I would say in, a, in, in addition to, well, anyhow, those, those were two those were main reasons. Oh, the other thing I would say is back then, because I'm I'm an old guy too, older than the B-52. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they still had fresh memories of World War II, which was horrific for Russia. I mean, horrific in a way that well, we can imagine from what's going on in Ukraine a little bit horrific. So I thought, okay, it makes some sense to do that. But certainly with a Kim Jong-un, I could see him saying, I won't be in the city they destroy in retaliation. I can see... Even Xi Jinping saying, I have more than a billion people. If I lose a million, that's not consequential. I can see Khamenei saying, in fact, various Islamists in the Islamic Republic of Iran have said, one missile will take out and destroy the Zionist entity called Israel. One missile here in uh, Iran would be too bad, but for the Islamic world, over a billion people, eh, no great shakes, really, when you think about it. So at this point, that's that raises a question. Hmm. Do we have to think about this very differently rather than say, yeah, we, we've always relied on this in the past. We can continue to do so. So, uh, again, uh, let, let's talk about since you, you mentioned uh, the rogues, let's talk about our, our policy to, towards the rogues. So the, the, the reason that we build missile defenses against the rogues, not only to protect the United States, but, but we want to have the freedom of action, right, 
to come uh, to the defense of our allies, to deal with these, these regional contingencies. If, if Kim or Khomeini have nuclear weapons that can threaten the homeland, they limit our freedom of action. It's a way of blackmail. Right. It's coercion, right? And we kind of saw this even with Putin here where he says, I'm putting my nuclear forces on alert. And suddenly we think, well, we better not give him MiGs. We better not do this. He's, he is deterring us more than we're deterring him in this situation, I would, I would argue. Potentially. Exactly right. And so what we want to do is we build missile defenses to tell uh, Kim that um, if you try to attack us with nuclear weapons, that attack is going to be futile. Right, because you're not going to be able to penetrate our missile defenses if, mm. if we've deployed enough of them, right? If we've deployed enough. Not only will it be futile, but it's going to be fatal because we're going to respond and destroy you, right? Right. And, and that, let me just get back, that's two kinds of deterrent. There's two kinds of deterrence. You've made this point in pieces you've written a lot and, and educated me on this. Maybe just very quickly say what the two kinds of deterrence are. Yeah, no, thank you, Cliff. And it's, it's a pleasure to, to be here with Rob, a longtime friend and, and former colleague. Um, you know, deterrence is one of these words that, uh, people throw around a lot. And, and sometimes we don't fully appreciate what it means. Just a few quick points. Deterrence ultimately is in the mind of the, the adversary or the aggressor. It's not what we think about it or what the New York Times or Washington Post thinks about it. It's what the adversary thinks about our capabilities and our will. And those are the two key points. What is their assessment, their perception of our military? military capability and our political will to use it. And if either of those are lacking, you really don't have deterrence. And that gets to the two kinds of deterrence you're talking about. There's deterrence by denial and there's deter deterrence by retribution. Deterrence by denial, very simply, is denying your capability, planting in your adversary's mind seeds of doubt about their ab ability to accomplish what they want to accomplish with an attack. You're denying them the objectives in whole or part of what they want to accomplish with their attack. Uh, denial by retribution is that if you do this to me, um, uh, excuse me, deterrence by retribution is that if you conduct this attack, I'll be able to respond in such a a, a punitive and aggressive and damaging way that you might not even want to do it in the first place. And that brings us right into the, a lot of these nuclear capabilities that we're discussing. And just so we're very clear on this, when you have MAD in place, mutual assured destruction, you are not attempting uh, deterrence by denial because you're not saying your missiles will not hit us. We'll knock them out of the sky. That When Reagan said, I want missile defense system, right, to ride it as Star Wars, how can you hit a bullet with a bullet? He was saying, I'm not entirely comfortable with this idea that we are going to give up deterrence by denial and say, hey, deterrence by retribution, that is satisfactory now, he may have been right or he may have been wrong in terms of the Russians, but again, it, that's where he gets it. It's a broad, we have a broader array of potential adversaries and attackers out there for whom retribution may not, if, if, for example, denial, denial, deterrence by denial can work with a suicide bomber. You're not going to get into this building and be able to blow up the people you want to. So don't even try it. You can't do it. Okay. But denial by retribution doesn't work with a suicide bomber. It doesn't work with a suicide bomber unless they're a very experienced suicide bomber, which is a joke because they because they there is no retribution once they're dead unless you do what the Israelis sometimes just say, well, you have a family, we'll take down their house, you know, we'll we'll do other things to you. Although then the Palestinian authorities say, yeah, but we'll give your family money because you're a martyr for the cause. Anyhow, we're getting to a lot of other things, but I just want to make this point about these two kinds of deterrence. Theoretically, I would think. Best for the U.S. if we all could wishful to have both to say you're not going to be able to succeed in your objectives. You're not going to be able to blow up Washington, D.C. And if you do, we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And we're serious about that.
right? Cliff, I think you said it exactly right. Just a couple of quick additional points. I mean, it, we, you know, these these terms sound very wonky and theoretical, but you brought them into the real world very nicely. Deterrence by denial. I mean, people old enough to remember, as you said, that that's Reagan's Star Wars. It's like, can we put enough missile defense assets in space, you know, strategic deterrence initiative where we could literally defeat a massive attack on our homeland, right? That sounds very appealing, right? Because sitting here and saying, I'm going to be okay with our country being destroyed by Russia. That's not particularly appealing to me, right? So, right. so I, <laughs> And we'll so, show you next time. <laughs> so we can do that. You know, count me in. I vote for that. Um, um, but the, the reality is that we're nowhere close anytime soon to being able to do that with respect to a China and Russia threat. But that's where Rob's nuance comes in beautifully is because that's different than North Korea, right? We currently right. have 44 interceptors in California, Alaska. Uh, most likely, Lord willing, that would be enough to handle uh, most of the, the threats that uh, Pyongyang might launch in our direction anytime At soon. This point, At this moment. Because he's but, not stopped building missiles and nuclear but weapons. But an important point from my perspective, Rob and I were both in the Senate at the time, the Obama administration cut missile defense yes. funding and put us behind in this constant race that we have. And we've been playing catch up ever since. Exactly. And then meanwhile, Iran, we mentioned Iran, you know, they're working on their space launch vehicle program, the very same technologies that could be used to fill an ICBM. And if we're not careful, we're going to fall behind the Iranian threat the same way we've fallen behind the North Korea threat. Right. And by the way, even under the JCPOA, if I understand correctly, the development of missiles that can carry nuclear weapons has not been hindered, slowed, stopped at all. None, none of that was even – for some reason, they thought, oh, we don't need to worry about that. We'll just worry about – No, exactly right. right. The bar was lowered on ballistic missiles for the 2015 uh, uh, Iran deal. Right. And, and as I understand it, what this new this new disasters deal on the table uh, will, will continue to turn a blind eye to the means by which they would deliver a nuclear weapon. So not only are they going to give them a patient pathway to a nuclear weapon, they're ignoring the means that our intelligence community has repeatedly said is how they would deliver that nuclear weapon. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So, Rob, given this background, what should what should we be doing? What should the U.S. the U.S. planners should say? Okay, I wish we had spent another nine or ten billion during the Obama era, but he cut it. I wish we had been we're we're behind the eight ball at this point. But what do we? If if you're if President Biden were here and he wanted to understand, you'd say, okay, well here's here's what's urgent and here's what's also important and here's what our priorities have to be and here's what you got to spend on and here's why this may be more important than other priorities that you would you came into office hoping you would be able to concentrate on. And I think you know what I mean by that. I guess I should just say what I mean by that is, I I would argue that climate change should not be seen as an emergency. That no that that be takes precedence over everything else because God forbid it's two degrees warmer in Maripol in 20 years. Um, we have to say climate change, I'm not denying climate change, I'm saying climate change is a challenge, but it doesn't override and eclipse every other threat we face when we're looking at missiles from numerous adversaries who, and this is another part of this, who have declared Cold War on us at this point, which we hope will not be a hot war, but we have to fight the Cold War. And I want to, I want to just give attribution to that. Um, Matt Pottinger, who is chairman of our China program, he has been more saying than writing. I, I've just written a column on this that, yeah, a Cold War has been declared against us by Russia and China with Khomeini and Iran as a junior partner. Other junior partners include Maduro and Venezuela and Castro and Nicaragua and all. But we have to recognize this reality because we can't fight a war that we don't recognize we're in. Right. 
Great. So again, let's let's use this uh, conceptual framework where we talk about defense against rogues mm-hmm. and then defense mm-hmm. against great powers. And we'll talk about what we should do with two uh, strategies. Two strategies, right? So we, under the under the uh, the Trump administration's missile defense review, we set a, uh, a, a force uh, sizing criteria for missile defense against rogues, where we said we will stay ahead of rogue stake threats. If North Korea increases the size of its ICBMs, we are going to increase the size of our missile defense. Okay. So as a result of that, Brad mentioned the 44 ground-based interceptors we have today. Our recommendation was to add 20 more, to take it to 64, and also to modernize the entire system, Mm. the the kill vehicle and the rocket and all that. The system that we have today deployed, there are 40 in Alaska, and four in California. These were these were deployed uh, in the uh, 2004 2005 timeframe. Mm-hmm. We pulled out of the ABM treaty in 2002, and we first started to deploy these systems in 2004. And it's, I apologize, yeah. but very quickly, just tell people what the ABM treaty was and what it did. Oh my! And what, what it does <laughs> Right. So this, very quickly. The, um, try to remember a, where you were. Too. It, no, it's actually a very very important concept to understand. In, in 1972, we signed a treaty with the Russians that said that each side was allowed to have only two missile defense sites, one around your capital and one around uh, an ICBM field. That was subsequently amended for one each. Now, the the reason we, the number of reasons why we signed that treaty, uh, uh, there was a big debate at that point. Should we defend the United States or should we rely on MAD, right? And uh, interestingly enough, the country was split on this. The final vote to go forward with the original safeguard missile defense system, which included about 12 sites around the United States, the vote was 50 to 50 in the U.S. Senate. Vice President Spiro Agnew had to come to the floor <laughs> to cast the, the winning vote. So, you know, this, this, the idea of whether we should rely on Matt or whether we should defend ourselves, this debate goes back to the very beginning. Mm. Everybody thought that the ABM treaty settled that debate. That we're just going to rely on mutual vulnerability. Right. But what we found out in the, in the, in the decade that followed, the Russians, sorry, the Soviets started, they never believed in mutual assured destruction. They didn't believe in, in, in mutual vulnerability. They believed that you should do whatever you can hmm. to provide protection for the state. Right. So they started to build a large, heavy ICBMs with multiple warheads that were designed to go after our military forces, not against our cities. Hmm. They mm-hmm. continued to field Missile defenses. Today, they have 68 anti-ballistic missile interceptors around Moscow. And Rob, can I foot stomp that? For the listeners, you'll hear that Moscow say from time to time that American missile defense is really destabilizing, that it's reckless and irresponsible and destabilizing for us to try to defend our people against nuclear attack. And yet Rob just told you they have more homeland missile defense interceptors than we do. And some of them, correct me if I'm wrong, are nuclear nuclear tip. They're going to use nuclear weapons to defend their capital. I mean, it's crazy, right? And so every now and then I just like to inject a little uh, couple of facts into the Kremlin talking points there. If I can. And by the way, another di- digression, but I think it's important. You know, the Obama, uh, President Obama uh, decided not to put um, what was in Czechoslovakia and in Eastern Europe. Ex- explain that little chapter there because this plays into this and you'll do it better than I will. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. When we built our, our I, I mentioned that we have a missile defense site in Alaska. We have one in Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. But we also realized, again, this was during the Bush administration, Bush the Younger, we realized that there, there are potential threats from Iran, right? So having a missile defense site that was located 
on the east coast of the United States facing Iran would provide us an advantage. But then we thought to ourselves, and this is going to be called the third site, the third site. But then we said to ourselves, hey, if we move it even further to Europe, to Poland, we can protect not only Europe against Iranian long-range missiles, but the United States, right? And so uh, our, our idea was to deploy a radar in, in Czech Republic and deploy uh, this, these ground, 10 ground-based interceptors mm-hmm. in Poland, mm-hmm. okay? But what happened was, of course, the Russians complained about us. Oh, my God, you're, 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 you're building, you know. It's, it's, it's pointed at us. You could use this it's to a, stop us. You could use this to stop us from hitting you with a devastating, maybe nuclear attack, and we don't want that, and you shouldn't want that. That was the logic of what that, they were that saying. That was, exactly. So, so Obama trying to, um, to, to thread the needle and to try to uh, alleviate this concern – Obama, um, his emphasis was more on theater missile defense, Patriots, you know, and uh, sea-based systems, and less on homeland missile defense. And so he eliminated those 10 ground-based interceptors, but he was sensitive to the views of the allies. He wanted to provide them some protection. So he substituted the 10 GBIs, ground-based interceptors, for two sites that would use the Navy's missile, the standard missile uh, three. I know this gets really complicated, but the standard missile three is known as a regional missile defense, not a homeland missile defense, in the hopes that they would convince the Russians that, hey, we're not we're not building this to defend the United States. We're just building this to defend Europe against Iran. But the, to their great surprise, the Russians were even more, more annoyed at the fact that we were substituting 10, you know, uh, 10 GBIs, taking those out, but adding uh, uh, two sites of, of 48 missiles each of SM3 missiles. So you you couldn't you couldn't solve the Soviet Russian problem, right? But as a result of this, um uh Obama I would say uh may have weakened the defense of, of the homeland by by a- ignoring those additional 10 ground-based interceptors. Okay? <clears throat> so uh so so fast forward to 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 uh, <laughs> you asked about the ABM treaty. Let, let me just cover this 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 key point here. So, as I said, there was a big debate over whether whether it was good to stay vulnerable or not. The ABM treaty supposedly settled the debate, but George Bush, George W. Bush, withdrew us from the ABM treaty because remember this was after nine eleven, and this was the concern about threats from Iran and North Korea and other rogue states, and he wanted to protect the nation against that. You could not do that. If you were still in the ABM treaty regime, because remember, the ABM treaty regime only allowed you one site. Right. We had to get out of the ABM treaty to protect the United States against North Korea and Iran and the like. So we pulled out all the, you know, the anti-nuclear crowd. They said, oh, my God, you're going to start this huge arms race. Mm-hmm. We pull out of the treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians are going to now, you know, build up their their arms and to try to overcome our missile defenses. This was the the action reaction argument of, of the Cold War, which which. We can talk about this. I, I don't. I don't think it was a valid argument. But anyway, so they said, "Oh my God, you can't get out of the arms control treaty. Arms control is 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 the most important way of maintaining stability with with Russia, right?" So Bush pulled out of the out of the um, the ABM treaty, and then shortly following that, he secured what was called the Moscow Nuclear Arms Control Treaty. He took us down from six thousand warheads allowed under the Star Treaty that that Reagan negotiated. To 2200. Mm-hmm. So now we had missile defense and we had arms control, right? Mm-hmm. So you could reduce nuclear dangers by both protecting ourselves and by reducing nuclear weapons. 
And so the, the argument that you, that, that missile defense is incompatible with arms control is false. You can have both. I guess, let me go to you on this, Brad. If you, I don't know if I'm entirely convinced that arms control is useful and helpful to us at the end of the day. Now, that's a pretty, I, that, maybe that's a radical thing and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll eat my words and you'll, tell, you'll make me, I mean, I went, when I went to graduate school, uh, this was at the School of International Affairs, the Russian Institute. I swear, arms control was was half of what they were they were because everybody thought that was the solution was arms control. But as time goes on, and you you, you can correct me because I could be wrong, it just seems like arms control doesn't really seem to work to our advantage. No, well, I'm sitting next to one of our nation's leading experts on arms control, Rob. So I want to hear your thoughts. But just but just a real a real quick thought is you know I, I view for what it's worth I view arms control. As, as a means to an end. And, and the end is the security of the American people. So if there's an arms control agreement that is sufficiently robust and can be verified and is transparent and enforced uh, that makes Americans safer, then count me in. So I'm um, not arms control for the sake of arms so, control. Right. And, and right. And, and, you know, some, sometimes it seems like we're into diplomacy for diplomacy's yeah. sake or, or, uh, international strategic agreements because they feel good. And, you know, that's maybe a little uncharitable, but in, in the end, right. I mean, can't we all agree, regardless of partisan affiliation, that the goal is to make our people and, and the world safer. And so I think it's reasonable to assert that some of these agreements do that and some don't. Right. Okay. But we should go into, uh, the these things with our eyes wide open about who's on the other side of the table. And if we look at the history of the Russians, right, we should assume they're going to cheat because that's what they do. I mean, uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the list goes on and on. You know, we're not going to invade Ukraine. We're not going to invade. They lie and they cheat. And we should assume that. So my goodness, you're going to have to have a really aggressive inspections regime for me to be comfortable that the Russians are going to follow in, in the future. But meanwhile, what, what adds a degree of complexity to this is that we were binding ourselves for years underneath the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that we had with just Russia. They were cheating on it. Meanwhile, China was fielding the very missiles that were prohibited under that system as, as much as they like. Because they're not in the treaty. Right, because they're not in the treaty, eroding U.S. the balance of power in East Asia uh, very dangerously. So, you know, I, I, I'm not visually for or opposed uh, right. arms treaty. I'm for ones that make Americans safer. Some do, some don't. And you got to look at who you're dealing with and they got to be. And, and, that, and, and that's the okay. same thing. I, yeah, that's, that's, I, no, I'm persuaded yeah. by that. Well, I, I, no, you, yeah. you made the point. Yeah. I think it's just if an arms limitation agreement kind of puts one or two of our hands behind our back, we have to make sure that not only the person on the other side of the table, say the Russians, also are doing that for real. and But also because the Chinese are there, they'd say, great, you tie your hands behind your back. That's wonderful for us, right? And, yeah, and a 30-second addendum. Okay. Yeah. I, um, and, and Rob made the connection between uh, you know the role that missile defense plays in all this. I, I want to add something that I think I probably learned from Rob years ago as well, is the connection between modernizing our own nuclear forces and arms control, right? Put your As hard as it is, put yourself in the mind of Beijing, or Moscow. Why would they ever come to the negotiating table with us in good faith if we're not doing anything that concerns them? Right. So if we don't modernize our own new nuclear deterrent and cause concerns for them, why would they ever come and negotiate good faith? And so think about that for a minute. That means that if you want to have real genuine arms control, the first thing you should do 
is make sure that you're modernizing our own nuclear triad, which we've delayed for too long. And I want you to, you know, you have several things to say on this, but add this into it. There is an argument made, I think mostly made on the far left, but you still hear it. No, no, no. What we do will be a model for the world. So if we simply get rid of our nuclear weapons, the rest of the world will say, what a wonderful thing. They're such a good, we'll have to do, we have to follow their model. And the world does not follow our model and our adversaries certainly don't. But you've heard that, you hear that argument and you know from, well, even the, the, what is it, the nuclear zero people who are some very global, global zero. Global zero. There are some smart people who you and I know in that movement. And I kind of thought, I don't understand what they're talking about. No, you're right. Uh, it's it, what's that saying? It's a triumph of hope over experience. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. No, that, and you, you'll, Which you'll, is like marriage, uh, second marriage after a divorce, <laughs> right? Exactly. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that, but I. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. It's uh, they're, they're, they're placing their faith in this in this disarmament example. And uh, it, uh, it, 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 it hasn't come to path uh, to pass. Uh, but, you know. What's interesting about about where we are in arms control today is there's a lot of focus on the New Star Treaty, right? Right, right. And right. You, you may remember that um, uh, the New Star Treaty was about to expire on um, shortly after uh, Biden took over. Right. And I was part right. of the I was part of the the team that was nego- trying to negotiate uh, a, an agreement with Russia that would follow on to New Start. So the problem with New Star Treaty uh, limits each side to uh, 1,550 nuclear warheads. And you can put those on 700 delivery vehicles. These could be submarine launch ballistic missiles, ICBMs, um, or, or bombers, right? So 1,550. So the, the problem with that treaty is not what's in the treaty, it's what's not in the treaty. And so while, while, while we, have, we have limited our strategic nuclear weapons, remember these are weapons that can reach from our territory to Russia's territory, the agreement does not limit at all what we call tactical nuclear weapons right. or non-strategic nuclear weapons. Okay, Russia has, no, right. yeah, we we say at the unclassified level that Russia has about two thousand of these. So imagine this: they and have, we have like two hundred. Am I right? Unclassified. Uh, they, 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 yes, you're 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 in the ballpark. Okay. It's, it's, they have an order of magnitude greater than right, we do. Okay, right. so, um, but it's not just the numbers, Cliff. It's the types of weapons they have, right? We have we have essentially one tactical nuclear weapon, one low yield nuclear weapon. It's the B sixty one bomb. It's dropped by fighter aircraft, or it can be dropped by by the B two. They have ground launch cruise missiles, sea launch cruise missiles, air launch cruise missiles. They have nuclear depth charges. They have nuclear torpedoes. They have surface to air missiles. They have anti-ballistic missiles. I mean, it's it's amazing. Why do you have all these capabilities, right? That's the problem. Remember I said that they are allowed 1,550 warheads under, under New START. They have more tactical nuclear weapons, 2,000, than they're allowed under New START, right? So that's the problem. That, that's the problem with arms control, that the next arms control agreement, if there is going to be one, it's hard to imagine one at this point, right? It's got to, it's got to capture Russia's non-strategic nuclear system. But two things. One is that Biden extended, if I recall, yeah. the new start for five years without correcting yeah. all the problems in it. I, I don't know if he, I think he was doing that as a way to be nice to Putin. He did a lot of other things to be nice to Putin, such as bless Nord Stream 2. I mean, he was, you know, he was trying not to be provocative and to rather placate. I think that was his strategy. It obviously didn't work, but I think that needs to be examined why it didn't. Also, what you're talking about, it seems to me, in the context of the Russia's war on Ukraine, when we talk about Putin saying, I'm putting my nuclear forces on alert, why does he deter us more than we deter him? Because he's got these tactical nuclear weapons, 2,000 compared to our 200, and we know 
oh my gosh, if he goes with those, we're we're kind of we're in trouble. And he could do it as a demonstration. He could use it, and he could still do this. I hope he would. But use a tactical nuclear weapon to take down a, a city in Ukraine with the idea. Now watch it, because if you push me, if I don't get my way. I'm going to do this in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, maybe Pol- who knows where we have NATO troops and where we have a chat where we where we have a chapter five chapter five article, article five, five an, an article five obligation to defend those countries as NATO uh, members. So I I just think that, that this is this is how this gets into what we you and I were just talking about how arms control agreements lim- can limit us and not limit our adversaries and those are not a, those are not successful treaties. Yeah. So let me get back to a point that, that Brad made, the linkage between nuclear modernization and arms control. You know, you can't talk about anything in this town without talking about politics. There's politics involved, all right? right. So set aside all the strategic arguments, uh, the arguments against arms control for nuclear modernization. The fact of the matter is that um, uh, we probably could not have gotten Obama's support to modernize each leg of the nuclear triad. Remember, the ICBMs, the submarines, and the bombers, unless the uh, the U.S. Senate ratified the new the New Star Treaty. Mm-hmm. In fact, I worked for John Kyle at the time. Senator yes, John Kyle, right? Uh, and, who I knew and admired a great deal. And he, and on these issues, he was he was the best in the Senate. That's right. He was. He yeah. was. And look, he he despite ulti- his staff, despite his staff, <laughs> uh, uh, Senator Kyle ultimately voted voted against the New Star Treaty for many of the reasons that you just mentioned. But but his strategy at the time was to um, again create this linkage between support for New START and support for nuclear modernization, mm-hmm. such that the, the, the resolution of ratification, when, when the Senate said, yeah. okay, Mr. President, you can ratify this agreement, it says, but what you have to do is you have to make a commitment to modernize or replace each leg of the nuclear triad. So remember, remember in 2009, President Obama gives his Prague speech, his vision of a world without nuclear weapons. We thought we were headed in that direction. We were concerned we being Republican staffers and senators, we were concerned at the time that that he may forego modernization of maybe the ICBM leg of the triad, or maybe forego the modernization of our air-launched cruise missile, right? This is what the anti-nuclear crowd was, yeah. was talking about at the time. But by supporting the New START Treaty with all its warts, we managed to secure a commitment from Obama to modernize the leg of the triad. So as as Brad says, means to an end. I would say that this this was this was well done. I got it. Okay. Okay. You're right. Yeah, go ahead. Brian. No, I yeah, just, yeah, there's, there's I, I'm, I'm enjoying this. There's so much to talk about here, just, but I, I hope the listeners heard uh, Rob's description of all the non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons that Putin has developed. I mean, if fans of Dr. Strange love it, I mean, it really mm-hmm. makes him look like a relative pacifist. If you look <laughs> at what Putin has done, I mean, this is crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, some of them are actually nuclear powered, right? So you have missiles flying through the air spewing <laughs> radiological weight. I mean, it's crazy stuff. And yet we're, you know, we're wringing our hands over one or two systems. Uh, you know, uh, 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 for non-strategic nuclear weapons. And and in the context of Ukraine, if it's helpful to listeners, I mean, Putin's giving us a, a, uh, a horrible but needed lesson on the continued relevance of hard power, but why these tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons might be relevant. As Rob knows better than me, they actually, the Russians actually have a doctrine of employing these first, as a, in a first-use sort of way, un, unprovoked by us to try to um, uh, uh, escalate to de 
de-escalate and right. to try That's to control this. this and, and, and this is a fun, I think this is a fundamental thing for, and, and I have yeah. no doubt Rob can improve upon it. But if all we have are, are these massive uh, nuclear weapons to destroy Russia and we don't have some of these low yield tactical nuclear weapons, then Putin might have the following thought process. He might say, hey, you know, I could drop a tactical nuclear weapon on this air base or this port and just scare the heck out of, of NATO or the United States. And I know they're not going to start thermonuclear war with us that ends life on planet Earth as we know it in response to that. So I'm more inclined to go ahead and do that. But if we have some low yield tactical nuclear weapons where he knows that hey, if I use a low yield, they might too, and it's a proportional response, then he's going to be less inclined to do it in the first place. And, and I mean, it's like, well, you know, it, who are these guys talking about nuclear weapons? Nuclear weapons are horrible. We don't want nuclear war. That's exactly right. That's exactly and that's why we need to be able to meet him on the various rungs of the escalation ladder. And if we can only go to rung number 10 and we can't respond on rung number two, we're more likely to get rung number two from our adversary. That's why you have to meet them on the, on the different rungs of the escalation ladder. Right, because you need to think about the incentive structure here. And just so people understand, escalate to de-escalate means I, say Putin, I escalate. The other side will so want to de-escalate that it'll give me what they want, what I, I mean, want. it's like if all we can do is end life on planet Earth by responding to his use of a, a one relatively small tactical on an air base, he knows we're not going to do that. And that increases the chance they'll do it. So we have to be able to respond proportionally. And that's why in talking with smart people like Rob in 2019, I pushed for the fielding of the low-yield submarine launch ballistic missile, which we did, which thankfully we now have in our arsenal, which is one of these kind of weapons. And Putin knows that. But in the news just in the last week or so, and, and Rob knows more about this than I do, the Biden administration, its, it's new budget request to Congress, is canceling the submarine launch cruise missile. And, and Rob may be able to want to talk about why that might be a bad thing. I don't know. Right. No, that, no, that's great. So, so when we conducted the nuclear posture review, the one thing that kept us awake at night was this disparity in, in non-strategic nuclear weapons. And when I say non-strategic, these are all the weapons that aren't covered under New START. They're the tactical nuclear weapons, the ones that we just, we've been talking about, right? And so for all the reasons that, that Brad pointed out, we were afraid that Russia would perceive an advantage, a coercive advantage, a military advantage in using those capabilities. So we had to think about doing something to counter that, right? To make it clear to, to the Russians and then to the Chinese, we should talk about China as well, mm -hmm. but to make it clear to the Russians that there's no scenario where they could use a nuclear weapon and we're not going to respond. Right. And so so we look at all these nuclear weapons that they had, all these capabilities, and we determined we don't have to match them weapon for weapon. We don't need to build another 2000 tactical nuclear weapons, but we needed to give the president some more options. So Brad mentioned this low yield submarine launch ballistic missile award. It's something that we could do immediately. Right. And we did that within with, within two years. But we were concerned in the long run that Russia is going to continue to increase the size of its tactical nuclear weapons. China is going to develop its tactical nuclear weapons. And so we needed a capability in, in the mid to long term to deal with this. And that was a recommendation for a nuclear armed sea launch cruise missile. Now, let me, let me explain the difference. So we've been talking about, you know, you, you know about our, our nuclear ballistic missile submarines out at sea, right? They stay quiet. They don't move and they uh, are prepared to fire ballistic missiles against the adversary. But back in the Cold War days, we had cruise missiles on our attack submarines. These are just the regular submarines that perform conventional missions. They, they go after shipping. Uh, they, they, they launch missiles uh, against targets on the land. But we had uh, a, a, a number of what we'll call the Tomahawk Land Attack Missile Nuclear, TLAM-N. We took them off the submarines at the end of the Cold War. 
around 1991, and Obama actually retired them from the force as part of his uh, 2010 nuclear posture review. We're proposing now that we modernize that system and return it back into the fleet, right, by, by the end of this decade. And so this serves a number of purposes, right? Again, now you have uh, attack submarines out at sea uh, in, in the Asian region, in the European region, and China and Russia know now that if they were to use a low-yield weapon in, in, in the manner that Brad just respond, uh, proposed, we would have an immediate response, right? That's the first advantage. The second is it increases the survivability of our sea-based leg, right? They don't, they can't, it's really difficult to target submarines. So this would discourage them again from attacking the United States because even if they got all of our ICBMs in the ground, even if they got all of our bombers on the ground, they'd have to worry about our ballistic missile submarines and they'd have to worry about these these uh, uh, sea launch cruise missile carrying submarines, right? And then the third advantage that we, uh, we deem from this is this would provide reassurance to our allies, especially our Asian allies. The allies are looking at, they're looking at North Korea. They're looking at China expand its nuclear capabilities. And they're saying, U.S., what are you going to do about this? You know, this is the concept of the, of the nuclear umbrella. You want to extend a nuclear umbrella to them, right? And so right now we rely mostly on our strategic nuclear forces to extend that umbrella. But why not add some regional nuclear capabilities the same way we had in the past? The pro and so you have a number of options. You can deploy missiles uh, on South Korea. You could deploy missiles in Japan. You could deploy missiles in Guam. But of course, there are political problems associated with asking your allies to deploy nuclear weapons. So the sea launch cruise missile was a way of avoiding that political problem. We could deploy submarines out at sea. You don't see them, obviously, but you know they're there. And that provides an added measure of, of deterrence against a Chinese attack, against a Russian attack, and it reassures your allies. It tells them, hey, if, if you are attacked either by, by nuclear weapons or large-scale conventional aggression, the U.S. president has another option to respond. So that was our argument, okay? And I think our argument, uh, given, given what we've seen today, uh, it, it, it's even a stronger argument. So for instance, uh, just last year, Admiral Richard, who's the commander of our nuclear forces, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, he, uh, he endorsed the Sea Launch Cruise Missile uh, in his testimony, and he pointed out that China has 900 dual-capable, or I should say nuclear-capable ballistic missiles that they can use in a regional context. These are not the missiles that reach the United States. Mm -hmm. These are mm -hmm. the missiles that can reach Guam, uh, Japan, South Korea. 900. Remember, the Russians have 2,000, the Chinese have 900, and you know how many the United States has? About 200. So, so there's, there's a disparity there that we, we, need to, we need to solve for, right? And that's, that's the rationale for the Sea Launch Cruise Missile. So you came up with this. It's a great idea. It makes perfect sense. And now the Biden administration has said, never mind. Never mind. Is there, do you understand? If, if I asked, if I had somebody here from the administration being honest, what would they say is the reason for that? They, they would say that, first of all, the president is, is trying to reduce the role of nuclear weapons. Our doing that alone doesn't do it. That's what I think we've established. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, unilaterally, it doesn't work. Right. That's the first thing they would say. And, and, they, and they would say adding the sea launch cruise missile would, would not only reinforce the role for nuclear weapons, but it could incite an arms race. Setting aside, yes, I know. I can <laughs> okay, see the you look on your face. I can see the look on your face. But, but then finally, uh, probably the, the, more, the more sophisticated argument is that, look, we understand the need for, for this kind of capability at the low end. But 
hey, we can handle that with the current nuclear forces. We can handle that with the modernized forces, right? Uh, we could potentially fly uh, a B-52 from the United States with an air-launched cruise missile and use that to attack a target, you know? So, so they're, they're saying, they're, they're banking on the fact that our existing capabilities would be enough to deter China and Russia. Uh, but again, you don't know. You don't know what's in right. Yeah. And, and you, you want to make you guess you're keeping notes, Brad. You, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm just, assuming you have a no, couple things you want to add. There's just some good good content here, not <laughs> enough time. I mean, my yeah. perhaps overly simplistic my uh, explanation, and and I have no doubt the Obama and Biden team may find this a little unfair, but I, I think it's based in reality. Is that it's what I've been calling the provocation premise, I, I, and and I saw this firsthand after the. Putin's invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea. You know, Ukraine was begging for weapons mm. and the Obama administration would not give them weapons because we didn't want to provoke, provoke. Putin, right? And, and there was the head of Ukraine before a joint session of Congress pleading, begging for weapons, saying, thank you for the blankets, but I can't defend my country with blankets, right? And it's the same reason why the Biden administration well, I think generally has the broad outlines right for my part in terms of Ukraine now, but it was so slow in sending arms that we should have been sending last year was the same provocation premise. And, and think if you think about it for a moment, this seems unrelated, but I think this is this is informing a lot of these decisions about nuclear weapons as well. Putin, it's clear to me on the outside now that Putin made a decision sometime last year that he was going to invade Ukraine. I mean, it, there were there were indications of warnings in the Pentagon early last year. Uh, it was clear for everyone to see in October. October and November. The Secretary of State was saying in November, we're likely to see a massive invasion. And yet all that time, go back and look at the rhetoric. We were worried about provoking Putin. I mean, how grateful Putin must have been for our concern about provoking for him something he already planned to do. And so, you know, my bumper sticker that I'm saying to anyone who listens right now is maybe as the United States and maybe as, as, as democracies around the world, we should spend a little less time worrying about provoking authoritarian bullies and a little more time in making sure democracies are better armed than they are before the invasion. And not the, the, the line between not provoking and placating, or to use another word, appeasing, is rather fuzzy in a lot of cases. Getting back to what both of you had said earlier about deterrence, if Ukraine had had more weapons earlier on, Putin might have said, you know, I'm not so sure this is going to be a cakewalk for me. Maybe, I sh maybe there's a different way to go about achieving my objectives other than using military force. And that gets into one other thing that I that I just want to make sure we touch on. We have a lot of time. And that is the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, where we insisted, and you've written about this, Brad, I think, where, we've insist, where we insisted that Ukraine give up its, the nuclear weapons it had left over from the Soviet days. And in exchange, it got this memorandum in which Russia committed to uh, respect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the country. We did too, but that wasn't a problem. We didn't guarantee we would do something about Russia if they didn't do it. I think they were arm twisted into accepting this, even though it was a very bad sort of agreement. But the question is, if they still had nukes, would Putin have done this? If not, they would have been better off having nukes. And I'll just add this one more thing and let you comment. Libya gave up its nukes. Next thing you know, Gaddafi's dead. Um, I, I think there are, I'm trying to think there, there are other instances, but basically at this point, and this gets into the whole, there's been for years, this non this movement against nuclear proliferation, non-nuclear. I wonder if that's not now 
dead as a doornail because people see it doesn't make sense to give up your nuclear weapons. And if you're Japan, you think I should have either my own or American nuclear weapons or something, especially if Taiwan gets taken and Taiwan, if Taiwan had nuclear weapons, would it be tactical? Would that be different? Anyhow, I, there's, I, I open up a big box here and I'll let you talk a little bit about it and then we'll see what else you, you really want to get into before we close up. I'm so glad you brought that up, <clears throat> Cliff. You know, I, I'm, I've been arguing, including before the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that we should be moving heaven and earth to arm Ukrainians to help them defend their homes. I think that's the, the right thing to do from a U.S. national security perspective. I think it's the morally, moral thing to do, frankly. And, and I think Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. And if we fail to do that, one of the negative consequences of that will be exactly what I think you've described, that people, that, that regimes around the world, both uh, uh, adversaries and allies and partners and everything in between, will conclude that, you know what, if I don't have nuclear weapons, I better get them fast. And if I do have nuclear weapons, I'm never going to give them up. Yeah, I mean, um, what is Kim Jong-un thinking right. right now when he looks if, to the degree that he's not, you know, wa not watching movies or something and actually, you know, paying attention to the Budapest man ran? It's like exactly right that after the fall of the Soviet Union and 30 seconds or less, there were Soviet nuclear weapons on Ukrainian territory. Ukraine did not have operational control of those weapons, but they were there. There were concerns about nuclear proliferation. They agreed to give them up in return for commitments, uh, a reaffirmation of commitments that Russia would respect their borders, not in vain. Yeah, big joke, right? I mean, come on. And then we go to the, by the right. way, if there's a problem, we'll take it to the UN Security right, Council. Right, right, right. Where right, Russia right. has a veto. And so, and so, I mean, there's, a, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, that is going to simply stoke the already massive problem we have with nuclear proliferation. And then, and then very quickly, the, the other point is that, and Rob touched on this a minute, just foot stomping in because I think it's so good, is that when the U.S. maintains an, a modern, credible, nuclear deterrent, including a triad, these three elements that Rob talked about, not only do we better secure the American people, but we make allies feel more comfortable that under our nuclear umbrella so they don't have to get their own nuclear weapons. So it seems a little counterintuitive first, but I think it's absolutely factual. When America maintains mm. a strong nuclear deterrent, we actually counter nuclear proliferation because countries like Japan say, you know, I don't need to get my own nuclear weapons. And by the way, the bumper sticker for this, which we were kind of explaining at some length, is peace through strength. Yeah. It's a, everyone says, oh, I'm for peace through strength. But peace through strength does not mean unilateral disarmament in any sphere. And it doesn't mean, oh, we have to avoid an arms race if that means our enemies and adversaries, they keep running and we sit on the sideline and have a tuna sandwich. Every time, exactly. And every time I hear the word arms race, I, the thing I think is that, you know, after like calming down and lowering my blood pressure, <laughs> I, I, I think the Russians and Chinese are racing. Yeah. Can we, can we just all as America, can we start, can we agree on the truth? Can we just start with the facts? And the facts are, and they're indisputable, that on nuclear weapons, Russia and China are racing. There's the starting point. Now the question is, how do we respond? But don't give me this whole provocation premise that if we do something, they're going to start racing. They're already, they're already sprinting. Racing. Is that right? And this gets back to what Matt Potter said is we're... A Cold War has already been declared. This is actually my most recent column mm -hmm. uh, in the Washington Times this week that if it's been declared, we have to decide, are we going to fight it or not? And if you're not going to fight it, you're probably not going to win it. You don't win a race again if you sit down on the sidelines. Let me, I guess we were, or listen, let me ask you for other points that I should have asked you about and didn't and other points that you think people need to understand about this, about these topics really, because it's a matrix of topics. So, Cliff, you know, you, you, you just spoke about China, right? And uh, I know Matt, Matt, uh, Matt does a lot of work in that area. And the, the expansion of Chinese nuclear capabilities is something that we need to start thinking more seriously about, right? During the Cold War, we, uh, we, were, we were concerned with only one 
uh, nuclear peer, Russia, right? Now, now by, by, uh, by the year, again, by the year 2030, the U.S. government estimates that they will have a thousand nuclear weapons. And remember, under New Start, the U.S. and Russia field 1,550. I think the, the U.S. government estimate is low. I think, I think China will aspire to have at least as many strategic nuclear weapons as the U.S. and Russia. So now combined, not, combined. So, uh, not, not necessarily combined, but at the same, each side will have about 1,550 warheads at the strategic level. They're going to have many more tactical nuclear weapons than we do. Russians will have many more tactical nuclear weapons than we do. But now you're in a situation where you have, you're, you're trying to deter two nuclear peers potentially at the same time. Plus the rogue states. Plus the rogue which, states. Which could be, which include, could include the Islamic Republic of Iran yeah. in, within a few, very yeah. few years, yeah. especially according to this agreement, which doesn't prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. I need to keep saying yeah. that because people think it does. And, and deterrence is much broader than nuclear deterrence, right? But, but if we're just right. talking about nuclear deterrence, the, the, the key question, I think that the big debate that's going to uh, occur in, in, in Congress, uh, especially after, after, the, after this, this nuclear sea launch cruise missile being canceled, is are we doing enough? Do we have enough nuclear forces to deter both Russia and China? So if we deemed uh, 1550 mm. the right number back in 2010, how can it be the right number in 2030? And, and, and how do we start thinking about what's, what's needed? Right. right. To, to, so, so now you've got you've got a Russian nuclear force and you've got a Chinese nuclear force. Do we need to double our force? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Of course, if, if we try to double our force, they will increase their forces. And, and you want to avoid an arms race. Ultimately, you want to solve this problem without an arms. If race. you can, all the, if you can. All the alternative is to what the Reagan would say is to win the arms race. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. And we'll get back to that all point. Right. That's important. But um, but there are ways of, of, of dealing with the problem. Uh, we, we may need to increase the size of our forces, not only our, our strategic forces, but mostly the regional forces. Remember, again, these are the, the tactical nuclear weapons, of which we don't have many at all, right? So we need to compete there. But again, getting back to politics, right? Uh, we need to compete. We probably need to expand our nuclear forces to account for the fact that we have two nuclear peers, right? But will we be able to? Will we be able to? The, this is the, the cancellation of the nuclear sea launch cruise missile does not augur well, right? If we can't even get agreement to go forward with this 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 capability yeah. that doesn't even violate the New Start Treaty, it's not counted on the New Start. What are the chances that we're going to get the U.S. Congress uh, to approve a, a major nuclear modernization program? You just have to take that into account. You have to take that into account, and and hopefully. Um, What's happening in China, the expansion of the nuclear capabilities will serve a function of of wakening up people to the threat, and that'll change minds, right? But this is is a 10-year problem that we need to solve. I'm not sure that the Biden nuclear posture review addresses this problem because it it, it really happened quite quite quickly. We we identified in China earlier this year that they were building uh, approximately 300 new ICBM silos, right? Worst case scenario, they put uh, a 10 warheads on each one of those missiles in those silos. That's 3,000 warheads that they can use against the United States. We have to figure out what that means for our security and what we need to do in response. And I, I'm not sure. Uh, well, let's just say that there's, um, um, there's, uh, there's lots, of, lots of homework to be done. But there's a glass half full here, Cliff, and that is uh, we have agreed under Republican and Democratic administrations to take the basic steps of modernizing the current nuclear triad, okay? We are going to have a new ICBM. 
We are going to have a new heavy bomber. We are going to have a new nuclear submarine. We are going to have a new air launch cruise missile. It hasn't been easy. It started <laughs> under Obama. It was affirmed by Trump. And now Biden, I think, has reaffirmed that he's going to go forward with the basic nuclear modernization plan. So the good news is you hear a lot of uh, anti-nuclear rhetoric from, from many members of Congress, mm -hmm. but they're not the majority. There is a consensus, Republicans and Democrats, to at least do this basic level of modernization. Whether it'll be enough to address now the threat from China as well as Russia, that is yet to be determined. Final thoughts, Brad. Anything else oh, you want man. to add? I, uh, thank I, you. I no, you that's, uh, I'll try to be succinct. I mean, I, I, I think that Putin has given us a wake-up call on multiple fronts. And, um, and, and uh, you know, many Americans may have hoped that um, discussions about nuclear weapons might have been relegated to the distant past. But, his, you know, Putin's nuclear saber-rattling reminds us that there are people in the world that still have these weapons and that still uh, wish us harm. And uh, to avoid a day where we ever see those kind of weapons used, we have to make sure that we have the means to deter them, which we've talked about. I agree with Rob that there is a bipartisan consensus on the need to move forward on modernizing our nuclear triad. I would just note that all three of those bills, those major bills for the uh, three components of our triad are all coming due at the same time while we're simultaneously trying to conduct the largest conventional modernization we've seen in three or four decades. And there's no way you're going to do what you need to do in the Taiwan Strait, in, in, in uh, Eastern Europe, um, and modernize all three legs of our nuclear triad and everything else we need to do if you don't have a defense budget that doesn't stay well ahead of inflation. And this, this, this budget request that was just submitted uh, by the Biomission to Congress, uh, depending on the rate of inflation, does not do that. And so that um, while there's a lot in this budget request to like, um, you, it's going to be difficult to do what you need to do if you don't get the top line right. Um, and, uh, and the last thing I'll say is uh, the, the administration just in the last few days submitted the classified version of their national defense strategy to Capitol Hill. And there's a unclassified summary of, of that that was released. And three of the four objectives under the national defense strategy are defend the homeland, deter strategic attacks, and deter aggression. You will not do any of that if you don't properly resource our nuclear deterrent and our missile defense, both regional and homeland. Well said. These are such critical issues. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you, we, we got to have this discussion and broaden it out from my initial thoughts on this. It's so important that uh, that we in the think tank community be smart about this and try to convey to those in the Pentagon, the White House, the State Department, how they can be smarter about this too. Because as we look back and as we've discussed, uh, often they have not made the best choices in the past, which makes it for a more complex and difficult situation now. But on some of these issues, and you educated me, Rob, glass is half full, so there's, there, there's a ways to go. And maybe we have woken up a little bit by this terrible war that uh, Putin has been waging in Ukraine. So to be continued, for now, Rob Sufer, thank you again for being here and for helping us understand this. Brad, uh, as always, thank you. And thanks to all of you who are with us for this whole conversation here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.